Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to turn there and follow along. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. This passage from the book of Acts is one that we read every Pentecost. And our focus then is typically personal. That is, we speak about the gift of the Holy Spirit filling every one of the disciples, and we emphasize the transformation that the Spirit brings about in them as individuals because it is truly dramatic. These disciples go from being timid, cautious followers of Christ to powerful and courageous advocates who are perfectly willing to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Their first priority is no longer preserving their physical life at all costs, as seen by their running away at Jesus' arrest, but they now stand in the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim Christ's lordship for any and all to hear. And when arrested by the authorities, they refused to cease and desist teaching in Jesus' name. But they also demonstrate a willingness to suffer the consequences for that decision. When, as disciples in the 21st century, we hear this proclamation of what God did at Pentecost, and we are told that God continues to indwell each and every disciple of Christ, we tend to consider the truth of that from a purely personal, individualistic perspective. 
we bask in the knowledge that God has given His own Spirit to me. And we may not consider the broader and perhaps truer implications of what God did at Pentecost when God filled the spiritual house that Christ is building, the church, with His very own Spirit. And that's part of what we want to consider today. We read earlier from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet that went into exile in Babylon in 597 B.C. before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The prophet Jeremiah had been preaching against the sinfulness of God's people for some time already, and Ezekiel then became another prophetic voice that joined with Jeremiah, echoing the same judgment, but preaching the word of God to the people of God in and from Babylon. In contrast to the false prophets who were operating in Jerusalem, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel proclaimed that judgment would fall mightily upon their nation and the holy city. At the same time, these two prophets offered God's grace if only the people would repent and turn from their wickedness. But knowing that they would not, they pointed to a future when God would redeem a remnant. Now, this is part of what we read a moment ago in chapter 36. God declares to his people through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this is God pointing forward 600 years to Pentecost. This is God declaring that a radical transformation will one day occur because the sinful nature of mankind has displayed an inability to redeem itself. If God is to have a people who are holy by nature, it will require that God be the Redeemer. If God is to have a faithful kingdom of priests and a holy nation that are His treasured possession, then He will have to be the one who brings this about. For we have shown that we are incapable of satisfying God's demands. Now the means by which God does this, we hopefully all know, is through the redemptive work of Christ at Calvary where His sacrificial death is sufficient to cover our sins, and by faith alone in Him we are made righteous in the sight of God. But then, God accomplishes what He promised to do through Ezekiel. For the sake of His own holiness, God transforms us by clothing us in the robes of Christ's righteousness and putting His own Spirit within us foreshadowed by the glory of the Lord dwelling in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem and then 
tabernacling among us in the person of Christ, God now dwells within and among His people by means of the Holy Spirit filling the hearts of individual believers as well as the church as a whole. The Apostle Paul poses the rhetorical question to the Corinthians, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as we see from the events of this Pentecost, this first Pentecost, God has gathered His people from all the nations. These who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks came from great distances. Jews and proselytes who had formerly dispersed into foreign lands. Now I want us to consider the providence of God here for just a moment. The Feast of Weeks was a harvest festival instituted by God following the Exodus. It celebrated the faithfulness of God at the wheat harvest. But all the while, God is instituting the Feast of Weeks centuries before. He is looking down through the corridors of time to this particular Pentecost when the significance of this harvest festival will be transformed by, God, by means of God's own Spirit claiming His people, taking up residence within them. This is a harvest unlike any other harvest. This is a harvest of souls who have experienced the faithfulness of God in an indescribable way. Now we are told here that there was a mighty rushing wind that drew the attention of all those who were nearby as it filled the entire house where the disciples of Christ were gathered in prayer, awaiting God's promise. The visual effect of what they saw were divided tongues as of fire that then rested on each one of them. The Spirit did not miss anyone. The Spirit did not fall upon the twelve apostles only, from the least of them to the greatest, the Spirit came upon each one of them, took up residence within each one of them, equipping each one to proclaim the wondrous things of God to all those who gathered in tongues that they otherwise did not know. Now you may remember John the Baptist indicated that the Christ would not come baptizing with water, but with fire. And so these divided tongues as of fire conveyed a divine source like the fire and smoke that settled atop Mount Sinai and the pillar of fire that accompanied the people of God through the wilderness. Such an image would have impressed these God-fearing people with a kind of purifying power unlike anything they had ever known before. And though the disciples were speaking in a variety of dialects under the influence of the Spirit, they were proclaiming to the world the mighty acts of God. There were no discourses on social justice issues. There were no sermons on how we can best overthrow Rome. Every voice was dedicated to communicating to the world what God had done through Jesus Christ. And while the miracle of speaking in dialects unknown to them did grab the attention of those listening, they they did not become the focus of their attention. 
They acknowledge that they are witnessing something miraculous, but they also recognize that the focus of the message is on the mighty acts of God. And while amazed and perplexed, they are left with the question, what does this mean? Indeed, what does this mean? Well, what this does not mean is that the Holy Spirit is suddenly confined to dwelling only in individual believers or collectively within the church of Christ. No. The Spirit is free to move wherever He so desires. Taking up residence in the hearts of individuals does not limit the Spirit's divine attribute of omnipresence. At the same time, it does not mean that the Spirit's presence with believers or the church is intermittent or occasional. When Jesus declared, and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, He meant exactly that. Once the Spirit dwells within a believer, the Spirit is there to say. Now, we may be tempted to process that reality as us possessing the Spirit. And in one sense, that is true. But we need to stop to realize that it is more true to think of the Spirit possessing us. The relationship between God and the church that we spoke of in the beginning was described when God said, You will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, there is a sense of mutuality there. But there is no relationship at all apart from God taking the initiative. So when the Spirit falls upon the church at Pentecost, it is God taking possession of His people. We belong to God. In challenging the thinking of the Corinthians at one point, Paul says to them, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now in taking possession of us, the Spirit joins us to Christ. Paul says to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him In a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The Spirit of God establishes an unbreakable bond between us and Christ such that we share in everything that Christ accomplishes. This is how Paul is able to speak of us as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Such a reality is not because of our accomplishments. It is because of Christ's accomplishments. We share in His inheritance, not because of our ability to cling to Christ, but because the Spirit has joined us to Christ who holds us in the palm of His hand. 
We share in His death. We share in His resurrection. We share in His righteousness. We share in His glory. We share in His victory. We share in His kingdom. We share in this and so much more. Not because of what we've done, but because the Holy Spirit has joined us to Christ. But the Spirit also joins us to one another. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he speaks about the most blessed fellowship that the Spirit through Christ has brought about between the Jews and the Gentiles that constitute the church. He reminds the Gentiles of how they were far removed from God, without hope in the world, but how their being joined to Christ has resulted in the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile being abolished and peace being established. And that Christ created one new man in place of the two, reconciling both to God in one body through the cross. And then he says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This ministry of the Spirit, in joining us to Christ and joining us to one another, does not receive nearly enough attention or contemplation by us. If we approach the church with something of a superior attitude, as though the church exists for my pleasure, as though it is my place to take the church's measure rather than the church measuring me, that is not dissimilar to the attitude Paul describes when he says that the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. We need to grapple with this notion that the Spirit of God has fallen upon us, taken possession of us, joined us to Christ for our benefit, and joined us to one another also for our benefit, so that as we approach the church, we do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul says. For it is in this union with Christ and with one another that we discover the blessing that is the church. God calls certain ones to specific ministries of service within the body in order to, he says, equip the saints so that the body of Christ may be built up so that all will become united in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God in order that we might reach spiritual maturity. It is in this fellowship that we are to speak the truth to one another in love so that we will grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. 
I want you to listen for a moment to what John Calvin says of the church as he likens her to a spiritual mother. He says, but because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn even from the simple title, Mother, how useful indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her, at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until, putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. You see, if we become dismissive of the church, if we treat her as though she is dispensable as far as we are concerned, then in a sense we have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit who seeks to join us to Christ and to one another. It's the desire of the Spirit for us to grow up into Christ. And that process is frustrated when we neglect our regular participation with the fellowship of the saints and the fellowship of the Spirit who has come to fill the church with His presence. But it's also the desire of the Spirit to help us find our place within this ministry of the church as every believer is called to a particular work. We're going to look at this in more detail next week, but suffice it to say that when we are dismissive of the church, we are resisting the Holy Spirit. Now let me say just a couple of other things quickly about the Spirit in regards to the church. In Jesus' closing discourse to the disciples, on the night in which he was betrayed, he spoke to them of sending to them another helper, whom he referred to as the Spirit of Truth. And then he said concerning the Spirit, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says, When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, as we said last week, one of the characteristics that one looks for when seeking out a fellowship of believers is whether or not they call themselves an apostolic church, which is a declaration that they adhere to the orthodox teachings of the first apostles. Christ promised that the spirit of truth would bring to the remembrance of the apostles all that Jesus had taught them, as well as guiding them into all the necessary truth. This is the same Spirit which we Protestants see as overseeing the compilation of the Scriptures. It's not that the Scriptures are truth because the church says they're true, but because the Spirit of truth effectively superintended their creation. And the Son of God acknowledged the authority of the Scriptures because He understood the role of the Spirit of Truth play, that the Spirit of Truth played in their development. As Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And as a result, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, is deeply engaged in the sanctification of Christ's church. Now, on the one hand, we are already justified in God's sight by virtue of our having been cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. When the Father looks at the saints, what he sees are the robes of Christ's righteousness. The debt has been paid, it is finished, and there is nothing that will ever change that reality. But we are also being made holy by the Spirit, so that the stubborn vestiges of our sinful nature are being mortified. They're being put to death by any and all means, but more, most frequently, I would say, by means of the Scriptures. How often over the years have we quoted Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This process of sanctification involves the Spirit of God making us aware of our sin, convicting us of our sin in order that we might repent and experience anew the forgiveness and cleansing of God. For that process to be most effective means that we are regularly engage with the Word of God through personal devotion as well as through our regular gathering with the saints in study and worship where the proclamation of the Word is common practice. And if we neglect that, then our spiritual development in terms of personal sanctification is hindered. Beloved, by sending His Holy Spirit, God has endowed His church with all that we need to grow up into Christ. So let us not resist the Holy Spirit, but let us actively cooperate with the Spirit as He joins us to Christ, as He joins us to one another, and as He empowers us to follow Christ faithfully into the world. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together for a moment this morning. Father God, as we contemplate what you have 